Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivagwani. Today, we are happy to share another remarkable story of a rare disease parent and the contributions they've made beyond their efforts to help their own loved ones. Our guest is Nick Thoreau, who's the CEO and Chair of Trustees at the AKU Society, an award-winning patient group that helps people with alkaptonuria, or AKU, which is a rare genetic disease affecting both of his children. Nick is also the co-founder and chair of Beacon, an organization that helps all rare disease patient groups and plays the same roles at Orchard OCD, a medical charity that funds research into obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, Perhaps most impressive of all, he's involved in making the very first treatment of AKU available. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Philippe Pachter, who is a podcast guest, for highly recommending and connecting me to Nick, as well as uh, a friend at former Elsevier colleague, Tim Hochter, who I learned uh, over several conversations. Uh, Tim hearing Nick speak at a conference was why Elsevier, uh, in large part, why Elsevier got involved in the rarity space in the first place. So Nick, it's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Good to speak to you. So in your own words, we'd love our audience to learn about your background. What got you interested in the world of rare diseases? Uh, was this something interesting before your children or uh, you know, obviously after your children? Uh, just give us the background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I really started developing an interest in rare diseases uh, after the birth of my first son, Julian, in uh, late 2000. And when we brought him back from the maternity clinic on a Sunday, we noticed that his uh, nappies were going red black. And so we called an emergency doctor um, who tested for blood and didn't find any and who asked what we'd eaten. And we'd had some red cabbage that day. So he said it was uh, the dye from the red cabbage entering the breast milk and then the baby and going to the urine. And uh, we were not very impressed by this answer, to be perfectly honest. Um, So the next day we went to see um, our GP uh, who did a whole bunch of tests. He sent off for some tests at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. And it came back with this diagnosis of this ultra rare disease called Alcaptonuria, which we call AKU, uh, which we now call black bone disease. Um, So up until then, I wasn't aware of rare diseases at all. Uh, had no idea that there were thousands of these rare diseases, uh, no idea that these diseases affect millions of people, and really no idea about alcaptonuria, you know, which affects one person in roughly half a million. Um, so our GP said, whatever you do, don't go on the internet. And obviously that's exactly what we did. Um, so this was in late 2000. We came across uh, loads of really pretty horrible stories of people suffering from this AKU, this black bone disease, um, becoming severely disabled as life progressed. So we were very alarmed. And uh, I got in touch with a patient in Liverpool called Robert Gregory, um, who had just made contact with a doctor called Dr. Ranganath at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. And Robert had convinced uh, Ranga, as we call him, uh, to set up a patient group with him. And so he invited me to join. And that's really when things started. So by then, uh, my second uh, son had been born. He was also diagnosed with alcaptonuria. And in 2003, uh, we set up the AKU Society, which was the world's first patient group helping patients with this disease. That's incredible. Um, obviously, took fast action and luckily got that diagnosis pretty quickly and didn't didn't listen to uh, that first GP about avoiding mm. red cabbage uh, uh, because... Um, one thing we know we've learned about the rare disease space is it takes uh, average rare disease patient four to nine years to get a diagnosis. 
Um, and so that valuable time where they could be getting some therapy or, or a parent like you could jump into action and help develop a treatment. So give us a, a bit more of a sense of AKU, uh, kind of how it affects patients. You already mentioned how rare it is. What are the, what are the um, palliative as well as the treatments that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it really, I mean, the first symptom is the urine going red black, you know, and that is due to a certain acid called homogentisic acid, which we call HGA, uh, which accumulates in the body at 2000 times the normal rate. Now, it's a, a single gene defect, so it's a monogenic disease. Um, and basically, because of that gene defect, because of the mutation, um, they have a certain enzyme called the homogentisate dioxygenase enzyme, HGD enzyme, uh, which malfunctions or doesn't properly form. And because of that, they can't break down this homogentisic acid. So us uh, who don't have AKU, we can break it down. With AKU, they can't break it down. And that acid accumulates and it binds to cartilage and bone over time. And it goes black in a process called ochronosis. And that's why it's called black bone disease. So this takes time. It takes years, sometimes decades. Um, so generally in childhood, all you see is the urine, uh, the sweat tends to go black, the earwax and all that. But the real clinical symptoms, the painful symptoms will tend to start in early adulthood. And that will be problems with the spine and then the weight bearing joints. Um, so the spine will start to collapse and fuse. Um, all the weight bearing joints will start to fall apart because the cartilage and bone starts to fragment. Um, Bob Gregory, a founder of the AKU Society, said it felt like having barbed wire in his joints, you know. And um, and then also the heart valves will start to calcify and people have problems with their eyes and their ears and different parts of the body. So it's a multisystemic disease, as are most rare genetic diseases. Um, and we have one patient, for instance, who has had 12 joint replacements. You know, he's had every major joint in the body replaced, you know. So and, and each time you go for a joint placement, it's a pretty significant operation, you know. And then it does also affect lifespan. Uh, we, we see uh, people dying earlier because of problems with the heart and all that. So it's a pretty nasty disease, particularly painful. And of course, there's all kinds of ramifications for mental health. Many of our patients suffer from depression, anxiety. Uh, they will tend to lose their jobs because they can't work. Um, often their relationships will, will break down and all that. We had one patient who was sleeping on a park bench uh, for, for, for ages and all that till he got uh, support from social services. So it's a pretty nasty disease. Now, it's actually pretty well known um, amongst clinicians because it was the first disease to be shown to be inherited. So there is a professor in London in 1901 called Sir Archibald Garrod, um, who managed to show that AKU was inherited. And that was the first time anybody had shown that a disease could be inherited. Until then, people knew disease could be contagious, but no one knew they could be inherited. And so he called it an inborn error of metabolism. And there's now hundreds, if not thousands, of these inborn error of metabolisms. So um, doctors will often remember that from, you know, very vaguely from just reading about it in their kind of clinical history books and stuff, you know. But that doesn't necessarily make diagnosis any easier. So you're absolutely right. Um, if our patients are not diagnosed at birth, uh, you know, so sometimes the doctors will come with all kinds of reasons like red cabbage or whatever. So then the patients will go on uh, for the rest of, you know, for, for, for years before the, the pain actually gets them back to see a doctor. And sometimes it can take 10, 20 or 30 years. We had one patient, it took 40 years before he had a diagnosis, you know, and um, they are sent from misdiagnosis to misdiagnosis, uh, sent for psychiatric treatment because patient uh, doctors don't believe them. You know, it's pretty nasty, the whole diagnostic odyssey. 
So what we've been doing um, when we set up the AKU Society is uh, we did a lot of uh, basic research into AKU, even though people knew about it for more than 100 years, uh, our unscientific understanding was pretty rudimentary. So as a patient group, um, I did lots of fundraising. Uh, we paid for a mouse model of the disease to be developed, which was very successful, a natural history study, a cell model, a postmortem of a patient. And then uh, there was a trial of a particular drug called nitizinone um, in the States, at the NIH, which unfortunately failed in 2009, even though um, it was reducing the acid by 95%. And patients on the trial were raving about it, but it failed um, basically because of a problem with the trial design. You know, it didn't last long enough, wasn't enough patience, uh, the endpoint wasn't really sophisticated enough. So with the Liverpool group that we had put together with Professor Ranganath, um, well, Ranga basically developed a whole kind of clinical development program uh, for nitizinone. And um, what we did then, uh, 10 years ago, we applied for funding to the European Commission. We got six million euros in funding. We put together a, a European consortium. Uh, we managed to convince the company that owned the drug, Swedish Orphan Biovitrum, to join us. Um, and then we did a phase two clinical trial and a phase three clinical trial, both of which were successful. Um, they showed not only a reduction of 99.8% in the acid, but they also showed a statistical benefit in clinical symptoms. And so um, the, the SOBI, Swedish Orphan, applied to uh, the European Medicines Agency two years ago and they gave a positive opinion, and then the European Commission gave a marketing authorization. You know, so now all AKU patients in Europe and the UK can have access to this drug nitizinone. You know, so it's an absolute lifesaver. And both my boys are on the drug. Um, I'm just back from Liverpool today uh, with my son Daniel, where he, we went for his week-long annual checkup. Uh, for his AKU, so MRIs, X-rays, everything you can imagine, and also, you know, to to renew his prescription for nitazinone. So overall, it's gone really well. We're really happy. That's incredible. What a great story. And um, before we go deeper into that and the pharma industry and thoughts on creating more rare disease drugs, what um, like how are your how are, you mentioned Daniel and you just got back from Liverpool? Good checkup. How old are your kids now? How are they doing? Just can you give us any more background on them at this point? Sure. So they are aged uh, 21 and 19. Our eldest has now been on nitazinone for four years. Um, his dosage has just been increased, actually, and that's going really well. And um, Daniel, uh, who's 19, has been on the drug now for two years. Um, they don't have any of the clinical symptoms, you know, because hopefully the drug will have been started in time. And um, the benefit, however, of going to this national centre um, that was set up 10 years ago by Professor Ranganath in Liverpool is that it's a one stop shop. So what you need, particularly for ultra rare diseases, is a real centre of excellence, you know, in each country. Uh, where you have a multidisciplinary team, you have clinicians and rheumatologists and metabolic consultants and orthopedic surgeons and everything who really understand the disease. Because until you have that, uh, patients are sent from pillar to post. You know, they go and see one doctor in one hospital, another doctor in another. There's no coordination. The doctors might have just seen one patient before in their whole career. It's just all over the place. And that's why this national centre was set up 10 years ago. Um, so when 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 the patients go there, when my boys go there, you know, they have access to world leading experts in AKU, which means that um, there's a better understanding of the disease, there's better monitoring. Um, they can detect early signs of possible problems and all that. And also they can then prescribe the drug, you know. Um, so, so, yeah, so far things are going really well. 
That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and these centers for excellence, uh, Philippe mentioned as well, uh, like for his daughter, Lisiane, who was born in the normal French maternity ward, did not get the best care immediately for Pierre Robin's sequence, ideally would have gone to the center in Germany. And then right. in that case, we have to make cross-border care, which is a yes. topic I know he's been working very hard on, more yes. accessible. Um, so we're coming up on the 40th anniversary in the U.S. of the Orphan Drug Act, which obviously mm-hmm. uh, has really helped us, helped pharma companies, incentivize them to spend time developing treatments for rare disorders like like, uh, like the, the one for AKU. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what more can the pharma industry do to help uh, for the other 7,000 or so zebras that exist? Yeah, I think there's a lot, actually. Um, and one of the problems is um, there's pretty big market failure, I think, in rare diseases, you know. Um, and, and for that, I mean, obviously, pharma companies are profit making businesses, um, but they will tend to avoid, obviously, those diseases where they can't make a return on investment. You know, they have uh, investors who want to make their money back and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there's there's hundreds, if not thousands of these ultra rare diseases that just nobody is touching, you know, because uh, they're not managing to potentially get their investment back and all that. So I think there's a lot of things actually that pharma could do. I think they could look at alternative business models. Uh, for instance, the one that we developed was a private public-private partnership. You know, so we got public funding from the European Commission, um, but the pharma company Sobi also put in some of their own money. They put in three million euros, you know, uh, compared to the EC six million. So it was a public-private partnership. And uh, they will make some money back from sales of the drug and all that. But now that the drug is off patent in their generics, it's obviously not going to be a blockbuster, you know. So one of the things I've been trying to tell pharma companies is that, yes, it's good for them to aim for their blockbuster drugs or their drugs that will generate significant revenue. But they should also maybe have one or two drugs in their portfolio where they're looking at, you know, maybe breaking even or some kind of low profits or whatever, you know, as a more kind of philanthropic approach. That'd be the first thing. I think the second thing is um, the pharma industry could look at what the legal industry does. So all the big legal firms have pro bono departments, you know, which are funded um, by their profits and where they treat uh, charities as full clients, but they don't charge them. And I think the pharma industry could do that too. You know, um, there is one company in Cambridge in the UK where I am called Costello Medical. Uh, they're an absolutely fantastic company. They do health economics and they have a pro bono department and they have done a lot of work for us on AKU, uh, for instance, on the AKU severity score index, which is one of the endpoints that we had for the trials, uh, where they've given us, I think, at least 80,000 or 100,000 pounds worth of pro bono support. And they treat us like real clients. So I think if the pharma industry set up these pro bono departments, you know, they could help rare disease patient groups by providing them pro bono support on clinical development plans, you know, on, on all these kinds of things that we need help for. You know, I think there's that that's the second thing. And the third thing I think should happen is um, I think that the pharma industry should be donating much more to patient groups. You know, I mean, as patient groups, we're always struggling for funds. Most of our funds uh, come from uh, friends and family. Uh, if we run marathons, half marathons, coffee mornings, all that. Uh, trusts and foundations in the UK from the big lottery fund. Uh, some government funding from the NHS or from the European Commission, very little comes from the pharma industry. And the reason for that is um, the pharma industry gives very little money to patient groups, you know, for all kinds of reasons, which I don't really believe in. Um, But um, we also have to jump through so many hoops, you know, that I'll give an example. We applied to a pharma company a number of years ago for like £10,000 to do our patient workshop. 
Um, it took six months, loads of forms. In the end, we got £300. You know, it was just like it just was not worth the effort. And the administrative burden they put on patient groups is absolutely huge. So what I believe they should do is they should put a small percentage of their profits into an independent foundation, which would then provide support to patient groups. And I think the best example for that is to see what the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has done in the US. So they were set up by the Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg, and his wife, Priscilla Chan. Um, who they put 99% of their shares into the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, who do all kinds of things. But one of the things they do is they support rare disease patient groups. And every couple of years, they do a call for proposals where they support 20 or 30 patient groups, and they give each patient group $600,000. Now, with that money, you can recruit a couple of members of staff, you can do a scientific development plan, you can develop a registry, you can start really interacting with industry. That's what I believe pharma should be doing. Hmm. That's really interesting. Like all those very actionable, actionable um, suggestions, I think are, are key. And hopefully, you know, just like we can't say all rare diseases are equal or all pharma companies are equal. There's certainly some pharma companies that are probably more ahead of the game than others in terms of thinking in this way. That's absolutely right. And uh, the prime example is the company who worked with Sobi, who I think were well ahead of the game. And I have nothing but praise really for what they've done. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Um, you know, one point we like to make to our learners, because many of them are current and future healthcare professionals, why they should care about the zebras too, apart from clearly having stories like yours that, and John Crowley and David Fagenbaum, we've had people like them on the podcast too, where it's very motivating. You hear the passion, the voice, and you get a lot of gratitude from these patients and patient groups if you dedicate your research career or, or provider career to, to these groups. Um, is that the actual science underpinning some of why these disorders exist by elucidating that there could be applications well beyond that rare disease or that collection of rare diseases. Uh, the case we like to always share is, you know, actually the development of Castleman disease drugs, uh, David Fagemore was telling me, led to a drug that has saved tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives from COVID uh, or, you know, familial hypercholesterolemia led to the development of statins. Um, so, you know, what, I'm kind of maybe taking the, the wind out of the sails here, but I'm curious, you know, given all that you've done across many disease states, including AKU, what can rare diseases teach us about common diseases and human biology? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a key point. And um, people have been saying that for hundreds of, year, hundreds of years. I mean, the founder of modern medicine, um, I think in the 16th century, said that understanding rare diseases helped us understand human biology. And Sir Archibald Garrod, who discovered AKU as an inherited disease, said exactly the same. And so did... Uh, you know, William Bateson, who was his contemporary, the father of modern genetics, and, you know, so did Francis Collins, ahead of the NIH and all that. So people have known that for a while. Um, so a few things there, uh, particular to AKU. I mean, you gave some very good examples there, but AKU is an extreme form of osteoarthritis. Okay. And our studies in Liverpool of AKU have led to new discoveries in the kind of the, the, the molecular um, kind of disease of osteoarthritis, which we published about a few years ago, you know, so it helps us understand the more wider diseases. And one of the reasons why I think is because rare diseases are often actually quite simple biologically, you know, so they help us understand these biological mechanisms. But the second one, which is really exciting, uh, we had um, a presentation, we did a scientific workshop in Brussels in May, and uh, we had a scientific pres a presentation from a group, uh, Alvaro, um, um, from um, the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, okay, on this drug nitisinone. So the drug nitisinone, which we use for AKU, was originally developed as a weed killer, 
It was developed as a weed killer in the 80s. And um, it works as a weed killer because it kills a photosynthesis. It stops photosynthesis. And it works in the tyrosine metabolic pathway in plants. Okay, It was never um, commercialized as a weed killer because it was too potent. But an analog of nitisinone called misotrione is one of the world's most successful weed killers. And you can buy it from any garden center. Anyway, nitisinone, um, they then thought, well, if it works on the tyrosine pathway in plants, it should work on that pathway in humans. So they then developed it for a rare disease called tyrosinemia type 1, which kills children by age 2, and which is on the same pathway as AKU. And that was in the early 90s. And then they thought, well, let's use it for AKU. OK, so it was repurposed for that. But more recently, in the past two or three years, this team at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, working with our Professor Ranganath, is developing nitisinone as a way of controlling mosquitoes in developing countries. Because when mosquitoes take blood, from someone who uh, has taken nitisinone, the mosquitoes die. And I don't understand the exact mechanism. They explained it to us and all that. And, you know, it, it's, uh, I think, available online. And there's an article in Beacon uh, on their website, on the Beacon website, all about it. But something to do with the, um, the increase in tyrosine that happens when you take nitisinone kills the mosquitoes. So what they are now trying to do is develop it as a medication that would be taken all across, say, sub-Saharan Africa as a way of controlling the mosquito population. So what you'd end up with is a drug originally developed as a weed killer, then developed for two rare diseases, potentially now helping in the fight against malaria and dengue fever and all those kinds of things, you know. So it's still a way away, but I think, you know, it's just incredible, actually, what can happen when you start studying rare genetic diseases. And when we give the blood of AKU patients who've taken nitisinone to mosquitoes uh, in the Liverpool School of Tropical Diseases, all the mosquitoes die, basically. First of all, they start to fly all over the place and they get paralyzed and then they die, you know. So there really is something there that I think is worth exploring further. That's amazing. And uh, you know, I mentioned we had one of our guests that we had on the podcast is David Fagenbaum, who I'm sure you mm. know well. Yes. book chasing my cure and and this week uh he he and i will both be at the clinton global initiative for different reasons rare disease related but he'll be launching um a, a drug repurposing initiative for that exact right. reason that there's three thousand plus humans humans have created three thousand plus drugs or or discovered you know obviously we didn't create all these drugs some of them are just natural but uh we only have a very limited understanding of how many of them can be applied so that's a wonderful example a weed killer yeah. turned something that's saving yours and, and many of people with aqs lives and now potentially a malaria treatment or yeah. uh, population yeah. control um I'm curious, you, you know, obviously why you got involved with AKU is clear. How did the OCD connection come into play and what are you doing with uh, with Orchard? Yeah, yeah. So I have had obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, uh, for just over 30 years um, on and off, uh, sometimes really, really badly, uh, particularly six, seven years ago with an episode of incredibly severe uh, depression, um, which meant that I had to leave my job and, you know, all kinds of problems and all that. And um, what happened was for a while, I've been thinking that, so I, I don't know how much uh, your listeners, uh, viewers know about OCD. Uh, it's a very common disease, you know, so it affects about two to 3% of the population, maybe even more. So in the UK, that's about a million to one and a half million. Um, it is very trivialized 
by the media, by the society, by society, and even by the medical profession. You know, the whole expression "I'm a little bit OCD" uh, really creates problems because the public perceptions of OCD is that it's just a quirk of personality. In reality, it's a devastating disorder. Fifty percent of patients have it very severely. Uh, one of my best friends took his own life two and a half years ago because his OCD got so out of hand. And I run an OCD support group here in Cambridge. Uh, we have patients uh, who haven't left their house for 10, 15 years. Uh, one in 10 patients with OCD will attempt suicide. You know, 60 percent are depressed. It's just awful. And um, um, a lot of OCD is actually not the traditional types that people are aware of. So people are aware of contamination OCD, they're aware of checking OCD, but there's a whole aspect of OCD, which we call pure OCD, which is really all in the mind, where your obsessions and rituals are entirely in the mind. And they tend to be linked to fears of doing harm, uh, blasphemous thoughts, all kinds of things. I'll give an example. Uh, one of my friends has a form of OCD called false memory OCD. Uh, well, at least that's what he calls it and what other patients call it, where basically his mind will um, construct false memories of horrible things that he's never done. But the memories will seem so real that he will spend 24 hours a day because he doesn't sleep much and all that, obsessing about these false memories, asking themselves, could they be true? Could they not be true and all that? And then creating all kinds of mental rituals, neutralizing thoughts to try and make it better and all that. And so, you know, it, and obviously that leads to suicidal thoughts. It's just absolutely horrific. You know, uh, another form of OCD is what they call um, postnatal OCD. It's just like you get postnatal depression. Uh, these will be new mums. Uh, they will just get an intrusive thought. What if I suddenly threw my baby out the window? And they'll be just like, what a horrible thought to have. I must be an absolutely awful, horrible person. I'd better never have that thought again. And so they're, they're checking if they have that thought. And obviously, if you check if you're going to have a thought, you have it. It's the pink elephant thing. And they're like, I've had that thought again. I must be a really, really horrible person. you know. And then they start obsessing about it and trying to think positive thoughts. And then they don't dare touch their baby. And it just all escalates and it just gets totally out of hand and you know, just awful. Um, so anyway, so um, I was finding that treatments were pretty poor. It tends to be high uh, doses of antidepressants, sertraline, Prozac, et cetera, with all kinds of side effects. They take months to have an effect or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which also doesn't always work and which is very hard to access. In Cambridge, we have an 18 month waiting list to access cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so when I got very bad six years ago, my older brother told me, look, if you set up a foundation to fund research into treatments, you know, I'll support you and help you get this off the ground. So that's what he did. So Orchard OCD, uh, basically, uh, we're entirely nonprofit and we fund um, non-commercial projects that will help develop treatments. So we have two projects that we've really worked on. Uh, the first is a medical device called transcranial direct current stimulation, which is a small medical device where you put two electrodes on your scalp and it puts a very faint, nearly imperceptible electric current. And we did that with Professor Naomi Feinberg at the University of Hertfordshire. And uh, it was a feasibility study and it detected a signal as in um, patients saw a noticeable reduction in their obsessions, so uh, well, in their OCD. And so now we're raising funds to do a much larger trial to really test that, you know. And then the second study, which starts any day, is testing a psychedelic. So you're probably aware that psychedelics are the new frontier in neuroscience. You know, people have known about it for decades, but because of the completely stupid drug laws that we have which have made them all completely illegal it's only recently that research has started you know i mean it's just criminal what these drug laws have prevented people from doing but anyway we are funding professor david nutt who's a big name in this area at imperial college 
And um, we did a crowdfunding campaign for that. And the study starts any day. It'll be an 18 month study on 20 patients where they will be given 10 milligrams of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So not enough to have a full blown psychedelic trip, but hopefully enough to help with what we call cognitive inflexibility, which is the kind of rigidness in thinking, which seems to be at the core of OCD, you know. So, yeah, that's why I'm involved in that. Uh, we just did another call for proposals. We should hear in the coming weeks who's the winner for that and we'll be funding them. So the idea is to develop new treatments for a very misunderstood and very under-researched mental disorder. That's very exciting. And uh, one of our previous guests on the podcast was Jim Fadiman, who's the father of microdosing um, right. on psychedelics. And uh, my board member, Mitch Rothschild, his wife, Rachel Yehuda, runs the Mount Sinai uh, and Veterans Affairs MAPS trials for PTSD using MDMA-assisted mm -hmm. psychotherapy. So right. it's a very yeah. exciting time. It'll be very interesting to see which one of those, or hopefully both of them, have yeah. uh, have an impact on OCD uh, at various endpoints. And you've done it before for AKU. I'm, I'm positive there'll be some good outcomes uh, for, for OCD as well. Thank you. I know we're coming up in time and I want to be respectful of yours. Uh, two last questions. Uh, sure. Osmosis is a teaching company at its heart. If you could snap your fingers and teach any group of people, the public, health professionals, uh, researchers, anyone about something, what would it be and why? Um, well, the f first thing for rare diseases would be to help people understand that these rare diseases are common. You know, um, when we did a survey a few years ago on students about rare diseases, uh, we asked them how many rare diseases do you think exist, how many people and all that. The answer was generally, oh, we reckon there might be five rare diseases affecting a few hundred people in the UK. And then it's like, actually, there's 7000 rare diseases affecting millions of people. You know, so I think that's the first thing people need to understand that rare is common. You know, that's the key thing. And then on OCD, um, I think for people to understand that OCD is a devastating disorder and to really help people to stop using this language, which devalues OCD, because it might seem like just a few words, but it has an impact. It has an impact on clinicians who don't take OCD seriously. It has an impact on funders who don't take OCD seriously and hence often don't want to fund OCD. And it has an impact on the pharma industry. I was speaking to some pharmaceutical investors the other day and they were like, why would we want to invest in OCD? You know, it's not a particularly nasty disorder. And I was like, it is. It's horrific. And at its worst, it's as bad as full-blown schizophrenia. So that those are the two things I really want to focus on. That's really, really helpful. We'll do our part on uh, on at least the first one. We're already starting to. Yeah. The second one we can further explore. Um, and then last question, what advice would you give to our audience about meeting their, uh, approaching their career in healthcare? Um, well, I would... Gosh, that is a really interesting one. I'd say to keep a really open mind, you know, a really open mind when you approach your studies and all that, um, to look at what is not always the most obvious. You know, I'd say that's the first thing. Um, so the clinicians that um, and scientists and all that that I've been really uh, most in admiration of is those who have a very open mind and who will go down areas that other people won't. I say that was the, be the first thing. Um, secondly, to really go to those areas um, that are under-researched and where there's a real underdog, which you get a lot in rare diseases, you know? I mean, it's from a career perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's not gonna be amazing really for your career to particularly study a rare disease, but the impact that you can have on a population, which is more or less abandoned, by society and by, you know, the kind of the medical industry and everything, I think is absolutely crucial. And the third thing is to really be motivated. 
you know. Um, my hero is uh, Professor Ranganath, uh, who I've now known for 20 years. Um, without him, none of what we've accomplished could have been done, you know. Um, the, the NHS in the UK is a pretty difficult environment, I think, to work in. I think it's getting more difficult for all kinds of reasons. And yet people like Professor Ranganath are the real heroes who are driving things forward, you know, who has a 100% commitment uh, to the patients, but also a real curiosity in the science. And I think that's what makes a huge difference. And I, I always say when I speak to new rare disease patient groups, if you can try and find your Professor Ranganath, because that's what will make a difference, you know. And I think he's the kind of example uh, for, for new scientists and new clinicians who are entering the field. That's amazing. And, and I think... I would argue too that even though it's, as you said, rare is common, like if you dedicate your career, let's just say a summer, a year, a fellowship, or your career to a rare disease as a current or future healthcare professional, you know, as you said, the patient groups are so happy and so grateful for that person mm. taking their time. Mm. But it could also be career game changing because yes. as we said, if you discover something or treat a new protocol or clinical trial or uh, repurpose a drug, it could have a massive impact well beyond, mm. right? Like I don't, would these would these malaria trials be potentially happening without the AKU society, you know, digging that, digging that up uh, and then happening to be at Liverpool? Maybe not. And maybe now that could... I don't know. But um, what I do know is our um, AKU team in Liverpool is really collaborating with the guys at Liverpool Tropical, the, the Liverpool School for Tropical Diseases. You know, so there's some real synergies there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nick, yeah. this has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be on the podcast. And more importantly, for the work that you're doing, not just for, for AKU and your family, but for OCD and rare disease in general. Excellent. Thanks for your time. Good to speak to you. And with that, I'm Shiv Lani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.